From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. And we're going to open today with a delightful little song. Yes, it's from Broadway. And tell me you don't like this. They talk a different language. They speak a different brand. Where we'd say plum delighted. They always say how grand. We say your thing's real pretty. They call the same thing chic. Why, you may as well be talking Italian or Greek. Oh, the old lord, 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 the old the the I can understand how you felt with your worries and cares Meeting all of them stuck up strangers putting on all them hairs Why enough of that? That is from Texas Lil Darlin, 1949. And that male singer was the person who was famous at that time on the radio for doing Senator Claghorn on the Fred Allen Show, which was the main model for Foghorn Leghorn, the loquacious Looney Tunes chicken, in case that sounded kind of familiar. But in any case, the reason I started with that is because, you know, if it's a democracy down in Lexicon Valley, then I need to listen to requests. And about every two weeks, somebody asks for a show about Southern English. What's up with Southern English? Why, where, etc.? What do we mean by Southern English? Obviously, the American English spoken in a certain Southern portion. But what distinguishes it? If you want to ask the question, why is it that people from the American South sound a certain way? What are we talking about? How do they sound? Well, a lot of what stereotypically we associate with Southern English is what linguists call R-lessness. And I've talked about that before on the show. I mean that you let your R's go at the end of syllables. So not at the beginning of the syllable. It's not that people in the South say Abbott instead of rabbit. But we're talking about somebody saying, for example, something like years instead of years or darling instead of darling. And I think a good example of this would probably be Tallulah Bankhead. She was an actress in the days of yours, she was born in Alabama and she had a good old fashioned southern accent. And, you know, it got to the point. I mean, she started out as an actress kind of, but it got to the point where she was really just famous for being famous, kind of like Zsa Zsa Gabor it was kind of like today with, say, Kim Kardashian. I suppose the fact that she has large buttocks makes her interesting. But beyond that, I'm not quite sure what all the fuss is about. Paris Hilton, I don't think, has large buttocks, although I've never looked. And yet she's famous just for being herself. Tallulah became that, although unlike Kardashian and Hilton, she was very, very funny. And so this is Tallulah Bankhead when she made an appearance on a latterly episode of I Love Lucy. And listen to how she says, for example, years and darling. I appreciate it so much. After all, you've had years and years of experience. <laughs> well, not that many years, darling. <laughs> However, you know, I think it would be fun. I haven't been in a school since 1900. <laughs> well, for years and years. <laughs> so see, that's the grand old 
Southern accent. She was very, very funny. This episode, apparently, she spent drunk during in rehearsals and was only sober for the taping. And afterwards, she was interviewed and she was asked, you know, how she liked Desi Arnaz. And she said, Desi, he's brilliant. He has a temper, however, but that's because he's fat. It worries him. I broke a tooth. I broke a cap they put on the tooth. I broke my nails. I had pneumonia. <laughs> That's perfect. Anyway, yeah, I know a lot of you don't care about Tallulah Bankhead, so let's try for something a little more relevant. Remember Jimmy Carter? He was president. He was from Georgia, and he had a southern accent. This was how Jimmy Carter sounded, and still does, since he's still alive. Here. Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, members of the 96th Congress, Fellow citizens, this last few months has not been an easy time for any of us. As we meet tonight, it has never been more clear that the state of our union depends on the state of the world. Or more fun and actually a better demonstration is his mother, Lillian Carter, she became actually almost more famous than him at the time. She was making, you know, appearances on sitcoms and in commercials. Lillian Carter was born in 1898 and she had just a honey dripping Georgia Southern accent. Listen to her talking with Johnny Carson in, well, I don't really remember when it was, but this is her talking to Johnny Carson and listen to how she says words like never and supper. She's not kidding. This is not an actress. This is how she really spoke. She was from the South. Did you ever say that to your son, the president, what? now when he's talking? Say, Jimmy, you talk too much. I said, shut up. You do, huh? <laughs> Other day when we left Atlanta, you know, the difference in time confuses me. Right. And uh, I never take a, my nip until just before I have supper. We call it supper at my house. We did in the Midwest also. Well, of course, supper. and that's what it really is. That's right. And I take, I take that little bourbon... Every evening, just before supper. A couple of fingers. Uh... Yeah, well, uh, no, I won't. No, I don't know. Just no, a little bit. Sure. And, also uh, notice that she says bourbon instead of bourbon. Now, Lillian Carter was not from Brooklyn. She wasn't from Hoboken. You can tell that she was from the South. And she said bourbon, which is exactly the way many of my own Southern relatives used to pronounce it. That oi for er is just a chance thing. It doesn't have anything to do with what you may have eaten in Brooklyn in 1915 or, you know, immigrants to Brooklyn or something like that. It's just something that can happen to Ur. Ur can go to Oi. And it happened in the New York area in this country, and it also happened in the Old South. It's almost gone now. But Boyben, as I showed on this show a good long time ago now, you can hear Louis Armstrong doing it all the time. But there's Lillian Carter, and she said Boyben, and she was certainly not imitating a black trumpet player when she said that. Why these ancient examples? Well, partly because, well, just because, but also because of a general theme of the show, which is that language always changes, and that includes Southern American English. Almost nobody has that particular kind of Southern accent today. That particular arlessness, that's older Southern at this point. That is very much disappearing. But you might ask, why was the South ever arless? You know, why 
Couldn't they pronounce their R's? What happened? Why did that development happen there? That R-lessness can happen in various places. It's certainly in Britain, certainly in Boston. But why did people not have their syllable final R's in the South? And you know what it was? You wouldn't think of it this way. It was because of, of black people. As we all probably know, there was a certain amount of slavery involved in the South. There was a very large black population there for rather grisly reasons. And this is the thing. Most African languages brought to the United States didn't have syllable final R's. And if you've had any experience with foreign languages, you can have a sense that to say corner is not the way a lot of languages would do it. That kind of R might be part of your language, but it might not. In many African languages, you go consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel. So ka, ta, bo, ko, very much like Japanese, which is familiar to probably a lot of listeners out there. African languages tend to be like that. They don't tend to have things like burner, corner. And so if an African adult learned English, then they might render it without those R's. And they might even pass that on to the generations of black people who were born in the United States. And that is why American Southern was R-less. And you kind of wonder how it would happen. And how it would happen is that often white kids were raised by black mammies, nurses, etc. And it was reported actually many more times than once that white kids ended up talking like the black mammies, and that that ended up affecting their speech. This is a classic example. This is a Brit. His name is G.L. Campbell. It's 1746. I don't know how to have him talk because we can't know exactly how he would have spoken in 1746. So I guess he just gets the prissy school teacher voice. And so he says in one book, one thing which they are very faulty with regard to their children, which is that when young, they suffer them to prowl amongst the young Negroes, which insensibly causes them to imbibe their manners and broken speech. Now, we know that by broken speech, he meant, well, talking not like him. And that meant that if you were a white person in the South, especially the Deep South, you might come out having a black sound because of that upbringing. Dickens mentions it. He had his trip to America. He says that it was mostly women who came out talking that way. And, you know, there are things that we will never know. But the reason that someone like Lillian Carter said supper instead of supper is because of black people. And of course, influence goes both ways in the South and always has between the white language and the black language. But it didn't make everybody talk the same. Southern English and black English aren't the same thing. And if you wonder, think about it. Do you really think that Bull Connor and Martin Luther King spoke in the same way? No, there, there's white Southern and there's black Southern. There's Southern English and then there's black English and they have a, an intimate relationship. But sometimes it's not both directions. And when it comes to Neva and Suppa and the way Tallulah and Jimmy Carter and Lillian Carter spoke in terms of arlessness, that is because of the African mixture in the South. The area where there is that arlessness in the South precisely overlaps with where slavery was dominant. It couldn't be an accident. Something else about Southern English is the whole pen-pin business. You know what I mean. So somebody from the South will often say that they're writing with a pen instead of a pen. And you might want to know, well, why is it? that Southerners say pin instead of pen. 
First of all, instead of me imitating it, since I'm from Philadelphia and not the South, here's a person actually doing it. Do it, person. Boysenberry. Grab the boys and bury this guy before the cops show up. Menu. Wolfgang Puck is one of the richest men you'd ever want to meet. If you look at where vowels are in the mouth, then e and i are next door. They're like neighbors. They're like Fred and Barney. And so they have a way of collapsing together. Fred and Barney shared things like lawnmowers. If you really look at the old show, they would share cigarettes. Fred and Barney smoked. They smoked Winston's, I believe. But they're next door. They start to become more like each other. It's the same thing as the fact that increasing numbers of young Americans say cot instead of caught. When you think of a hawk making lazy circles in the sky, they'll say it's a hawk. You'll say, what's sushi? And they'll say it's raw fish. This is called the cot-caught merger by people who know too much about it. And it's getting to the point that a lot of Americans barely have the all sound. And that's because in the mouth, as opposed to in the goddamned alphabet that's so misleading, in the mouth, all and ah are right next to each other, Fred and Barney. So, of course, they might start falling together. What I mean by this change, I can illustrate this way. Drew Barrymore is an actress, you know that. And here's her just talking about something I was barely listening, but listen to the way she says thought, taught, and talked. Life is, when you remember it, is not in order. So I thought these stories would be better like a, you know, shuffled deck of cards. On the other hand, having a very public experience when I was young taught me a lot about responsibility. Yeah, and I hope, you know, that she knows when she reads it, because we've talked about, you know, the book. So it's more like thought, taught, and talked. But Drew Barrymore actually had ancestors, and in her case, ancestors who were amply recorded. Let's listen to Drew Barrymore's grandfather. Let's listen to John Barrymore. He was an actor, too. I would venture probably a better one than she is. And John Barrymore is here in Dinner at Eight, which is from 1933. This is my favorite old movie, except for about 25 others. And at this point, he's actually he's supposed to be kind of drunk. John Barrymore was very good at playing kind of drunk. Imagine, especially in a time when acting usually wasn't as subtle as we're used to. He's playing just kind of drunk. Not a stretch for him, partly because he actually was a falling down drunk. It actually got to the point about four years after Dinner at Eight in the operetta movie Maytime. One of the only reasons to sit through it today is that Barrymore literally can barely stand still. You know, I wasn't even prepared for it. I watched it and I thought, is he drunk? Because he can't stand still when he's supposed to just be listening to somebody. Anyway, in Dinner at Eight, he wasn't quite that far gone. And more to the point, listen to his speech. Listen to how he does not have the ah-all merger yet. When he says words like thought, it's thought. When he says all, it's not Drew Barrymore's all, it's all. That's because he's from before this merger. Well, did you see Bowman? I thought perhaps he'd come up here with you. Oh, uh, Barman, but he's got to do it. It was all settled. 
or these mergers. It's not just about caught caught. It's not just about the Barry Moores. It can be about Sophia Coppola, Francis Ford's daughter. She no, I'm not about to make fun of her performance in Godfather three. That wouldn't be nice. But she actually has a beautiful example of the way vowels are shifting in California. Listen to the way Sophia Coppola says do. First, let's listen to her say a few sentences. It brought together all the things I was interested in, and in photography, and music, and design. And so um, I think it was when I did my short film that I realized this was something that I, that I could do. Now, Mike, could you please isolate the do? Do. So notice how she's saying something more like de. Just play it about three times. Do, do, do. Well, why is she saying de? Well, it's not something to be made fun of. That's happening to California speech in general because I and U are actually kind of close in the mouth. The U is moving forward, as we put it. And so she says D instead of do. I can't help laughing. And I really shouldn't. But I, I actually I'm laughing partly because some friends of mine and I like to make a little joke where in Godfather 3, she's asking her father whether something is true. And she says, Dad. Is it true? (laughs) I shouldn't laugh at her and I'm going to stop. But anyway, all these mergers are just to show that pen pin is just business as usual. It's bound to happen somewhere in the speech of almost anybody in the South. It's the pen pin one that caught on elsewhere. It's the caught caught one that caught on, as Drew Barrymore would say. Or you can talk about whether something is true. And so that's just how these mergers work. What about... Might could. What's that piling up of auxiliary verbs? Somebody might could have done it. And they get better. There are people who say might should oughta, might woulda, had oughta. They can really pile on. Why? Where does that come from? Why would anybody do that? You know, if you are a Swede, you can say skal kuna, and that's like shall ken. I'm sorry I'm doing that Swedish accent, but you know what? I'm doing it. Or they could say skal mo, and that means shall, may. That's a Scandi thing. And Scandis, back in the day, now we think of them as naked in the sauna and peaceful. There used to be Viking Scandis, and they used to kind of stomp around Europe and beyond. And they certainly got to the England island, And their Old Norse speech, that's early Swedish, their Old Norse speech affected the English that was spoken or the Scots that was spoken. And so you start with them piling up their auxiliary verbs like that. Then apparently what seems to have happened is that Scots started doing it. They stopped off in Ireland and established it further there and then brought it to the United States. Even today, you have different kinds of combinations in, for example, northern Britain, where somebody can say something like didn't used to could. That's not something somebody in North Carolina would say, but it's the same bow plan, essentially. And it came from, as far as we can tell, Scandinavia, then through Scotland, then through Ireland, and then it really settled down in the American South. So I think people often want to find these links between something specific overseas and something interesting about the way Americans talk. That's a rare example where you can actually find one. But we have to be careful. There's always this idea that, for example, Appalachian English, and that's one branch of Southern, Appalachian English 
preserves Shakespeare. You know, that's Shakespearean English is preserved in these hollows or hollers of Appalachia. And, you know, you read that here and there. I've heard it said at parties. People look you in the eye and tell you that this is true. But really? <laughs> Can you imagine what that would be like if you actually walked down a hill somewhere in Appalachia? Appalachia, I don't know how to pronounce it, so let's just leave those two in there. And all of a sudden you're listening to people who sound like much ado about nothing. Come on. For example, because frankly, it's time for a clip. Let's think about Lil Abner. They're supposed to be Appalachians. And there's a, a Broadway musical. It was called Lil Abner. Lil Abner was a comic strip. It was very popular at a certain time. And as you can imagine, there was a TV show. There were two attempts to make it into a cartoon. There was a Broadway show. And the Broadway show was filmed almost intact. And, you know, they have their way of talking, and it's not a perfect reflection of Appalachian speech, but it'll have to do here. But the people in Little Abner don't sound anything like the people in King Lear. And so, for example, this is the ending song of Little Abner, The Matrimonial Stomp. Do you hear anybody here sounding like The Winter's Tale or even The Comedy of Errors? Don't let me influence you in saying those fatal words. Fatal words. Just let me remind you, getting married is for the birds. birds. He gets up at the crack of dawn, right. stops the hogs and you mows the lawn, oh, so. saws the wood and performs the chores, uh-huh. while it's rainy and wet outdoors. He comes home to familiar scenes oh, yes. and a plate of familiar beans. Oh, no. There's 22 screaming kids oh, my. making both of you flip your lips. You is jumping out of your skin. Your your mother-in-law moves in. For good? There's no place to rest your head. No, sir. Because there's other folks in your bed. I know. You has got to escape the noise. So you has a drink with the boy. About time. You proceeds to the old brass rail. The policeman throws you in jail. You can't get a cent from your wife. They incarcerate you for life. Now, if you still want this little gal as your lawful mate, my powers invested, I pronounce as you man and... Wait! What about y'all? Yeah, we're going to get to to y'all. You know what? We should all say it. We should all say y'all. English's pronouns suck. Think about it. You singular and you plural, we're so used to it, but kind of ambiguous. If you've jumped over to any other language except maybe Hindi, you get used to the fact that they actually have a separate you for singular and plural. What's wrong with English? Why can't we say y'all? And yet, if somebody does say y'all, we reject them as quaint. We say, oh, you're Southern or you have less of a mind or something because you're from below a certain latitude or something like that. That's not fair. We should all say y'all. No, I don't because I'm not allowed. You're not allowed, and I exist in a society, just like naked people are not generally taken seriously. So no, I don't say y'all, but I wish that I could. Southerners in America apparently developed it. It is not inherited from Sweden or Scotland or anywhere else. People who speak African languages don't say y'all because y'all is English. It came from the South. It's something that grew up in the South. And, you know, the thing about y'all, this is what I'm supposed to say, is that it's supposed to be only plural, but we Northerners, when we make fun of Southerners, use it in the singular, and that means we're wrong. And that is true. And so there's no such thing, technically, as saying to somebody something like, oh, Jimmy, what's that y'all got in your hand? Jimmy's not a y'all. He's a you. 
So many Southerners justifiably laugh at the rest of us for supposing that y'all is just some sort of slang word or whatever it would be for singular you. But y'all is actually more interesting than that because people do use it in the singular. They use it in the singular in what you have to imagine as a specific situation. And so you're sitting there, you're in Mississippi, and you're all by yourself, and you're eating your grits. The waitress might come up to you. These are documented examples. The waitress might come up to you and say, how are y'all's grits? And remember, you're just alone. There's nobody under the table. It's not like somebody left. You're alone. She comes and she says, how are y'all's grits? Well, where's the other person? And yet that is something that can happen. Or this is another one that's documented. A professor is doing a class and he's sick. And one of the students, this is in the South, says, why don't y'all go home and get over that cold? I'm sorry that I'm doing this Southern accent, but it's the best I can do. I'm from Philadelphia. Why don't y'all go home and get over that cold? Well, it's not like there are two professors and she's not saying that the professor should go home along with some other students who should also go home. It's just one person. Those are actual usages. And what it is, is that y'all can be used to one person as a marker of politeness. Now, nobody would put it in so many words, but it's the same thing as in French, where it became entrenched to refer to one person as vous. If you've taken French, you're so used to it. But why are you referring to one person as two? Because there's a distancing effect. If you refer to somebody as you too, then in a way it's less direct and offensive possibly as just saying right into their face, you right there. You refer to the king as plural. The king might refer to themselves in the plural and call themselves we. The idea is to avoid giving offense by implying that there's more than one person. So how are y'all's grits? So instead of saying, how are your grits? Are you enjoying that food that frankly is never as good as people say you might not be liking them? That's just my opinion about grits. But instead, how are y'all's grits? As if there's somebody under the table. It just seems less direct. You're trying to eat your food. Why don't y'all go home and get over that cold? Well, you know, the student isn't supposed to be talking to the professor and saying something as personal as why don't you go home and take a rest. That's a little cheeky. So the way to do that in a way that would be taken nicely is to say, why don't y'all go home and get over that cold? That's actually very polite. So y'all is becoming interesting in that way. Y'all is used in the singular, but not just if you're asking somebody what's in their hand, but in order to be polite of all things. There's so much about language that they don't want to tell you about. It's always more interesting than you think. What about the drawl? y'all. You know, the drawl. I get asked about this often. And, you know, it's one of those things where there's just nothing interesting to say. I mean, yes, Southern English has a drawl and it's quite beautiful and it's very much an element of its own. It's interesting. You can take Southern English and take away the arlessness which is one of the big stereotypes about it. Stereotype that is true, but one of the things that we think about the most. And yet the drawl can still be there. And a beautiful example of that is one of my favorite old Southern voices, which is Lucille Benson. And Lucille Benson was the house mother on the late, great sitcom Bosom Buddies. Remember that Some Like It Hot knockoff with Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari? I saw every episode then, Donna 
Dixon. And then I got it on DVD. It still holds up. About 10 years ago, I watched it on my exercise bike and had all those same feelings. And Lucille Penson was the house mother. Loved her voice then. Now, of course, you're all wondering, who the hell is Lucille Penson? And, you know, IMDb captures her perfectly. This is what they say. Lucille Benson was a plump, distinctive, and marvelously quirky character actress with a heavy down-home southern accent who portrayed an offbeat and enjoyable array of colorful, supporting, dotty old lady roles in both films and TV shows alike. That is who Lucille Benson was. And listen to her wonderful, wonderful voice. And what you're listening for is that she is awful, not awful, awful. She has the R's at the end of her syllables. She probably, I'm guessing... Either she always had them or probably because of the old school elocution lessons she would have had as a stage actress, which is what she was at first. She probably learned to put the R's back in, but you can't get rid of your drawl, or at least she didn't. And so listen to Lucille Benson. This voice reminds me of being 15. I I think you're missing the point. No, I'm not. And I'm not a monster. But this hotel has rules so women can come here and feel safe. But I'll do this. I'll call a meeting tonight and let the girls in the hotel decide if you can stay. So what is it? Well, it just is. There are things that happen. Like I talk about a path. Many British people would talk about a path. Why? Just happen. I would say school. Lucille Benson would say school. I say school. She would say school. Isolate it. Ooh, 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 ooh. It's just that vowels change. It's what happens. And in the American South, there that was. It isn't mentioned until relatively late, but apparently it happened and it was gorgeous. And now it's disappearing. We now move on to what's happening to Southern English. And for one thing, in terms of people talking about how Southerners sound, only after the Civil War can you tell that what we know as classic Southern American English exists. Before that, you hear various random things that don't sound like anything we associate with the South. In other words, the changes were at different places then. After the Civil War, you know they're talking about something that we would recognize as Southern. But for example, one classic trait of Southern American is to change I into ah. And so instead of nice white rice, you have nice white rice. And so you're saying nice white rice, roughly. That monophthongization, say that, it's fun. Monophthongization. If you say it, you kind of feel like you're ready to begin your day. That's what it's called. Monophthongization. Anyway, that aspect, really, as far as one can tell, that only happens in the 20th century. And so nice white rice isn't the way, you know, Johnny Reb would have said it while he was carrying his gun. What am I talking about? In case my imitation isn't good enough, listen to Lillian Carter again and listen to how she says I, time, and five. Did you ever say that to your son, the president, now when he's talking? Say, Jimmy, you talk too much. I said, shut up. You do, huh? (laughs) other day when we left Atlanta, you know, the difference in time confuses me. Right. And uh, I never take my nip until just before I have supper. We call it supper at my house. We did in the Midwest also? Well, of course, supper. and that's what it really is. That's right. And I take, I take that little bourbon every evening just before supper. Well, a couple of fingers? Uh... Yeah, well, uh, no, I won't. No, I don't know. Just mm, a little bit. Sure. And uh, we got on the plane, 
And it was five o'clock Plains time, and it was about two California time. And I made the so given that she was born in 1898, she would have possibly been one of the first generations to actually say time instead of time. You just never know with these things. Before that, it's so random. And so in 1829, somebody is talking about what Southern English is, and they say that instead of saying fetched, people say fotched. So have you fotched the water? Well, what the hell is that? We've never heard anybody say that, but apparently that was Southern. The past tense of help, and actually this traces back to earlier English. It's kind of the way it should be. The past tense of help was hope. So I hope in yesterday. That was something people said. They don't now. You kind of wish they did. Some people said hoped. And then that kind of leached out because you can't keep everything. Mark Twain in Life on the Mississippi, which is worth a perusal, 1883, he's talking about things he hears, and you have to kind of smack your ear a little bit. He's listening to people in the South saying not Carter and not Kata, which is what we remember from Jimmy Carter and his mother, but Kiata, Kiata, K went to Kia. And it wasn't just with that word. People would play not cards, but Kiads. So you lose the R and also it's Kia, Kiads. I've never heard anybody say that, and I kind of kind of don't want to. People weren't driving cars, they were driving kyaz, kyaz. Isn't that odd? And yet that just kind of died, and nothing would have been stranger than to have gone back to Charleston, South Carolina in particular, before the mid-20th century. The aristocracy there had ways of speaking that don't sound Southern. They don't sound Northern. They just sound like something from the planet Neptune. And so to be sophisticated, you didn't say garden in Charleston. You said garden. That to them sounded high class. To us, it sounds like you just had a stroke. Or for calm, like calm seas in a palm tree, they would say cam and pam. And they were proud of it. Very strange thing. You couldn't even depict this if you were trying to do a movie about the place because it would make everybody look like there was something wrong with them. But that's to say that also there is much diversity within Southern American English, of course. There are different flavors. There is Appalachian. There is the quote-unquote yat dialect of New Orleans and nearby places in Louisiana. There used to be this Charleston business. Things differ from place to place, but there's always been a certain larger common picture. I'm afraid that um, I have an erratum, and this is completely my fault. I just talked my way through this really quickly in the last episode. Would is the past tense, as many of you have quite properly told me, of will, not of want. I just scooted by that and stopped thinking about myself. And so would is the past tense of will, not of want. Thank you, folks, for letting me know about that slip. And in the meantime, this episode has been just full of things that I love to pieces. And here's something. I know that this song's topic in no way sums up the South, but I just love it anyway. And I suspect many of you will, too. And this show and this movie in particular, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, who cares about the show? The movie is a joy forever and nobody seems to care about it but me. And I think it's wrong. It's just slipping between the cracks and I must pull it out of those cracks. So this is Dom DeLuise singing a wonderful song. Texas has a whorehouse in it. Lord have mercy on our souls. Texas has a whorehouse in it. Lord have mercy on our souls. I'll expose the facts although it fills me with disgust. 
Please excuse the filthy dark details and carnal lust. Filthy dark details and carnal lust. Dancing going on inside it. Don't you see they've gone come wild? You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. This show was edited, as always, by Mike Volo. I'm John McWhorter. And don't touch that dial. Don't touch that dial. This is Melvin P. Thorpe saying I'll be back with new and revealing information about this and other cases. Watchdog never sleeps. And it must.